Hey everyone, the topic of today's podcast is the year anniversary of Hurricane Maria, but I wanted to first spend a few minutes on Hurricane Florence. As we're recording right now, Florence has hit Cambridge, Massachusetts, and it's raining buckets. Um, my fabulous colleague, Climate Policy Director Rachel Cletus, popped over in the pouring rain to give me her perspective on Hurricane Florence. Thank you, Colleen. Yeah, as you said, we've got flash flood warnings up all over Massachusetts today. We're seeing torrential rainfall. But when this storm made landfall last week near Wrightsville, North Carolina, on the 14th of September, it brought record-breaking storm surge and torrential rainfall to the Carolinas, to Virginia, and it's made its way up north now. Those areas are still seeing the effects of the storm. Uh, we're seeing rivers near record levels uh, that still haven't reached their crest. So all through this week, we're going to see flooding worsen in the state. Uh, we saw a record-breaking rainfall. As of now, 32 people have lost their lives. Moody's has estimated initially that the damage costs are in the range of 17 to $22 billion, and that could go up. So we've got rivers like the Cape Fear, the Trent, the PD still rising. There are concerns about coal ash ponds and hog lagoons being breached, which could spill toxic waste into waterways. At the peak of the storm, over a million people lost power. The Brunswick nuclear power plant had to be shut down, and the area around it is still flooded, blocking access to people coming in and going out. Major highways and roads have been closed for days, leaving some communities cut off. And what we're seeing, unfortunately, in a reminder of Hurricane Maria from last year, is that smaller, more isolated, and lower-income communities are bearing a disproportionate brunt of this storm, too. And this storm comes on the heels of last year's record-breaking hurricane season, which brought us Harvey, uh, Maria, Irma. And we know that climate change is contributing to the harms from these types of extreme events. With sea level rise, we've got storm surge that's now higher and able to reach further inland. Warmer sea surface temperatures are fueling storms, making them more powerful, intensifying them more quickly, as we saw with Florence and with Harvey and Maria. And in a warmer world, what we're seeing is the atmosphere can hold more moisture, and that increases the potential for these record-breaking rainfall events that we saw with Harvey and now with Florence. So all of this is a really sobering reminder that we've got to get out ahead of these kinds of impacts. We're already living in a warming world where these impacts are bringing devastating harm to communities. We've got to do more to protect people well ahead of these events, not just in emergency response mode. Uh, we've got to invest more in recovery that makes people come back in a more resilient fashion. And of course, we've got to do our utmost to cut the carbon emissions that are fueling climate change. Welcome to the Got Science Podcast. I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. It's been one year since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico. We're going to tell you what one Puerto Rican scientist has to say about the recovery. And stick around after the interview to learn about how science is rising up all over the country. And now, drumroll please, I've got an exciting announcement. One of the things I've really enjoyed about hosting this podcast is meeting listeners and hearing your ideas. So to make it even easier to connect, we just launched a Twitter account. So get those opposable thumbs working on your phone 
and find us at GotScienceUCS. That's at GotScienceUCS. About 45 minutes by car from San Juan, Puerto Rico, a beautiful beach town called Loquillo nestles between the Atlantic Ocean and the island's famous rainforest, El Yunque. A few of my UCS colleagues recently traveled to Puerto Rico for a scientific conference and made a stop in Loquillo. They told me it was hard to imagine that this tranquil coastal community was ever in danger. But of course, Hurricane Maria hit all of Puerto Rico hard in 2017, In Loquillo, the storm's after-effects were the scariest, with no power, scarce drinking water, and little aid from the government, locals had to band together to survive. It's been a year since Hurricane Maria hit Puerto Rico, when our federal government looked away, leaving thousands of Americans to die. In that year, many Puerto Ricans have united to help rebuild and navigate a sustainable recovery, finding a silver lining in their togetherness. As part of that effort, my colleagues were on the island to help kickstart the first-ever Puerto Rico Science Policy Action Network, which is helping connect local scientists who work on energy, conservation, and issues of sustainability to policymakers in the Puerto Rican government and the U.S. federal government. The network will work together to find opportunities where scientists can advocate for policy decisions that will affect all Puerto Ricans and push back together against any unscientific proposals made by the federal government. My colleague, Juan Declet Barreto, a climate scientist with our Center for Science and Democracy, was among the UCSers who made the trip, along with podcast correspondent Abby Figueroa. They made some time while they were in Loquillo to talk about Hurricane Maria, recovery, why you should always listen to climate scientists, and how Puerto Rican scientists can help prevent the island government from creating more vulnerabilities to the storms that are ahead. I'll let Abby take it from here, but before I do, I encourage you to listen for the local fauna in the background. Loquillo is full of life. Thanks, Colleen. Hi, Juan. Good morning. Good morning. Welcome to Got Science. Thank you. We are here in Luquillo, Puerto Rico, and there's a beautiful view of the Atlantic Ocean outside our window. Tell me a little bit about this place where we're meeting today. Well, Luquillo is a town in the northeastern coast of Puerto Rico. It's a a beach town of about 20,000 people. It's a town with beautiful beaches. It's a town that I have a lot of fond memories of because I used to come here and spend summers and all sorts of holidays with my family. And it's a place that I had been eager to come back after Hurricane Maria um, to see how it had fared since since the hurricane came through and um, had a chance to talk to some people, some of the community members around here, had a chance of um, looking at what the town looks like and some of the economically depressed conditions that have followed Maria. But I am also very happy to come here and see some of the really fantastic uh, work that local community members are doing to try to recover, to conduct a, a just recovery for their own communities on the island and to do uh, lots of important work on coastal conservation, uh, protect wetlands and uh, leatherback turtle habitats uh, from encroaching development. So it's been about a year now since Hurricane Maria came to Puerto Rico. What damages were experienced here in Luquillo? Um, well, there were a lot of structures were, were heavily damaged by winds. 
fortunately for the people of Luquillo, uh, because of the orientation of the coastline and the fact that the storm came in through the southeast, there wasn't a whole lot of storm surge. Uh, most of the damage appears to be from winds. Um, but still, that also meant that you know power was knocked out for a long time. Portable water service was not available for a long time. The response of the Puerto Rican government and, the, and FEMA and the federal government was also very slow. So that meant that people had to take matters into the, in, in their own hands and band together to uh, clear roadways, to take a trip up to the El Junque National Forest, the rainforest, where these communities get their water from. So they uh, had to clear roads and go open up the, the water systems that have been shut off by the, the water company to avoid those getting flooded and damaged. So people had the people in the community themselves, without the heavy machinery and without the support of government, any government services, had to find potable water sources and clear out their their roadways by themselves. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, I had a chance to talk to a uh, local artisan who is fashioning um, arts and crafts out of flotsam, jetsam, and and debris, wood debris for the most part. And he told me that, you know, in their small little community of maybe like a block or so, um, which is a, it's a, it's a beachfront community next to a high-rise development, they didn't have power, uh, they didn't have water, so they had to go up to a Junque, take uh, the treacherous trip to, you know, under those conditions. So they first had to clear the road so they could get to the entrance to the rainforest, which in, in normal conditions would be a 10-minute drive from, mm-hmm. from where the community is. They also um, set up community watches. They banded together as, as neighbors. Uh, they pooled resources, and the people who could cook would cook, and the people who could operate uh, some of the you know handheld machinery to like buzzsaws and so on, they operated them and cleared the roads. So it's it's indicative to me that um, that there are levels of social capital through which people bond and, and, and become resilient together as communities, and that social fabric seems to have strengthened in the aftermath of the hurricane, which to many of us under the current or trajectory of development of of urban development in Puerto Rico over the last 50 years or so had been eroded. So it's, it gives me very ambivalent feelings. You know, on the one hand, you know, we have people, uh, um, community members who say things like, well, we should be thanking Maria for what it did to us, Mm -hmm. what it did for us, because it has shown us our potential. You know, it has allowed us to come back uh, and unite uh, together and, um, it's, it's finding something good out of a very bad experience. Yeah, yeah, so, you know, it's testament to the ability of people to be resilient, right? To not just lament their lot in life, right? To say, well, you know, we had this, this terrible calamity that hit us, but we need to get up and we need to do something and nobody's going to do it for us. So we need to do it by ourselves together. Tell me a little bit about your work, your scientific work, and how does that intersect with the recovery efforts here in Puerto Rico? How are they related? Um, I'm a geographer by training. I have expertise in geographic information systems, and which I use to map hazards like um, extreme heat and climatic impacts and the populations who live exposed to those and the characteristics, the demographic and socioeconomic characteristics of the populations that are exposed to those to try to identify that intersection of populations and environmental hazards and impacts. I currently serve as a climate scientist in the Climate and Energy Program at the Union of Concerned Scientists, where we are exploring what the future may hold um, in terms of extreme heat based on what climate scientists' models are predicting that those temperatures may mm-hmm. be. Do you see a way that science can play a role here in Puerto Rico with the recovery efforts? 
Absolutely. Um, science has a fundamental role in the recovery of Puerto Rico because scientists have studied, have researched, and the findings of those re of that research has, has prompted scientists to warn the population, to warn the government and, and all sectors of society that there are climate risks such as terrible storms like Maria, Irma, and Harvey, that there, is, uh, that there are sea level rise impacts also that are making life difficult in coastal areas that there is a need to transition away from uh, climate-vulnerable uh, energy systems, like currently like the ones that are used in Puerto Rico, which mostly burn diesel and oil and other fossil fuels and are located in, the, in, in coastal areas, which um, create a sort of double whammy of vulnerability for those energy systems because they're vulnerable to storm surges and to become flooded and inoperable. Um, but they, because they burn fossil fuels that, that are imported from, from other countries, um, then they are subject to a lot of price volatility of fossil fuels in the global market. It's an interesting uh, challenge and opportunity for Puerto Rico right now because there's so much that needs to be rebuilt, but it needs to be rebuilt not to the past standards, but rather for the future, for the climate change impacts in, that are coming over the next decades. Right. That's something that the scientific community in Puerto Rico and the Puerto Rican scientific community in the diaspora that's mostly in the United States, has already understands very well and has internalized. Um, that there is a need to not repeat the mistakes of the past. We also have to, uh, to, to contextualize this by understanding that Puerto Rico has been undergoing a massive economic contraction, fiscal crisis that has been brewing up over the last 40, 50 years that became, that basically touched bottom maybe 10 years ago. And that the 2017 hurricane season just basically magnified and made everything worse. I was recently talking to a public health expert from Puerto Rico who was telling me that Hurricane Maria didn't destroy Puerto Rico, that Puerto Rico had already been destroyed 30 years ago by the fiscal crisis. And I thought that that, that, that being true, then that would mean that then Maria is a sort of climatological broom that swept away the debris of the crumbling infrastructure, in energetic infrastructure, housing infrastructure, um, transportation infrastructure that had not been adequately maintained and planned for, even designed for a tropical uh, island with a different kind of topography, with a different set of needs and risks, um, inland and coastal. We see that in community after community after natural disasters, the places that are more resilient will recover faster, better. But the ones that have other underlying structural problems, the climate change impacts, natural disasters, end up amplifying the, the existing problems. Has that been your experience um, here in Puerto Rico as you've been touring the island? Yes. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the structural conditions of the island as a territory of the United States with a very limited way of, of Puerto Ricans to exercise their democratic rights and participate in, in, in the decision-making process that affects their everyday life, you know, like, you know, the energy system, highways, you know, transportation, where we import the things that we don't produce and how much do those cost, you know, all those things have um, all these impacts on people's lives and that structure kind of like preconditions a lot of the vulnerabilities of, of the population. Then the population resilience to that through banding together, through developing that social capital, through forming neighborhood alliances and watches, you know, from the most informal sorts of organization 
of a couple of neighbors to larger island-wide organizations that engage with the public and private sector provides a wide spectrum of opportunities for the Puerto Rican scientific community to engage and bring in those lessons that the local experts, the residents, you know, the residential communities who know their communities, who live with the hazards, who have a long historical memory of environmental change in their communities and are attached to those places by culture, by race, by class, by long history of being there, can help strengthen that. And that's something that's fairly, that's not unique to Puerto Rico, but the way that it happens in Puerto Rico is very um, specific and idiosyncratic, idiosyncratically Puerto Rican. Um, and I don't think that's something that is necessarily understood only or even known by people in the United States or in other places. Um, Puerto Rico slides under the cultural radar of many people in the United States, even though it's a U.S. territory. And so a lot of people really, even in the States, do not quite understand like where we are, or, or literally like where we are, where is Puerto Rico, and if we're Americans or not. We'll be back in a moment with the second half of our interview. The Got Science Podcast is brought to you by the Union of Concerned Scientists. More at dotsciencepodcast.org. You can find us on iTunes, Stitcher, PRX, SoundCloud, and many more places where you can download podcasts. Now, let's get back to our interview. We know that recovery from a natural disaster takes time and sometimes many, many years for a community to get back to where it was um, before a storm hit. It's only been a year here in Puerto Rico. Do you see mistakes or missed opportunities in this first year of recovery that the government uh, could have done better? I think that there have been some missed um, opportunities by the government to engage with the local energy sustainability experts in the island to engage them in the conversations about how is the how is the grid going to be rebuilt? You know, is it the energy grid is it going to be built in a resilient way, or are we going to continue our dependence on fossil fuels? Are we going to rebuild the same power plants in the coast in the coastal areas and just basically ensuring that we will be in a very vulnerable pop, uh, situation in the next hurricane season? Mm-hmm. Um, so definitely, I think there's an opportunity for that. The, the Puerto Rican scientific community has been engaging and trying to do that. And um, it, but it, it didn't. The set of missed opportunities did not begin in the post Maria period. Um, we've been talking to to scientists who Puerto Rican scientists that are engaged in commu- with communities who have been warning the Puerto Rican government for a couple of decades that there was a need to start planning for category three, four, and five hurricanes, um, because that's what the climate models said. That science was ignored by um, the government authorities saying that those were hypothetical models, implying that because there were, were computational models built on a, on a computer simulation that they were plainly hypothetical, right? Um, well, they turned out to be very real. You know, so we saw them in Hurricane Hugo and, um, you know, something like 20 years ago, right? And as we saw recently with Hurricanes Maria and Irma, so now we are uh, seeing some uh, a repeat of the mistakes of, of the past in that regard, because now um, many of the Puerto Rican scientists are warning that, for example, the Luis Muñoz Marine Airport in the northeastern part of the island in, in the coast is going to be chronically inundated very soon. 
uh, maybe be, may be rendered unusual. And those warnings, it looks like they're being ignored. There's no, there doesn't appear to be any, any sort of planning for that, um, which would be a process that would take a long time, right? So if, a hypothetical question, if you were appointed tomorrow by the governor of Puerto Rico to oversee the recovery, what would you do? I, I hear that you would be consulting with energy experts, you would be taking climate risks seriously, reconsidering the location of the airport. What else? What else would you do to make sure that recovery is both equitable and sustainable? I would bring local community experts from the residential communities who are actively engaged and bring them, invite them, bring them to the table at the beginning of a process together with climate scientists, planners, psychologists, sociologists, uh, all sorts of experts, government officials, public policy makers, planners, and so on, and start talking about what are the ways in which we can make this work for everybody. Because it seems like the priorities that are being addressed right now are the priorities of those who want to continue burning fossil fuels, of those within Puerto Rico also who want to continue, for example, selling tires, and so have no investments in public transit, um, and, and, and things like that. Speaking of experts, luckily, there are a lot of Puerto Rican scientists here on the island, and you came this week specifically to meet with a new group called the Puerto Rico Science Policy Action Network. Tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, um, that uh, this is very exciting to me. The uh, Puerto Rico Science Policy Action Network, or PRSPAN, is a uh, collection of, of, of scientists focused on Puerto Rican um, issues, and both um, from Puerto Rican scientists in Puerto Rico and in the, di in the diaspora in the United States who are very interested in engaging in the public policy process, who have expressed a desire to do this, but, um, but want to be able to do this together as a community of scientists, um, to develop tools, to use the tools that are available to engage successfully in the public policy making process. It's very exciting to me as a UCS scientist because it's one of the things that can um, help make possible the full exercise of democratic rights in Puerto Rican society. As we know, a healthy democracy needs um, access to data, needs an informed population, and that information comes from scientific knowledge and comes from um, other sorts of knowledge that, that people from the residential communities can contribute. Um, and, and, and we are living in a political moment in the United States which impacts Puerto Rico where all these attacks on science and scientific institutions and scientists' ability to do their work and communicate the work to the public so that we can have a healthy planet and environment are coming under attack and are very worrisome. And um, after the destruction caused by Hurricane Maria, Puerto Rican scientists and the communities they serve are very worried that if a uh, recovery is not done in a sustainable and resilient way, that prepares us for the challenges of the future, then we're, uh, that then we're going to be facing the same post-Maria situations that we faced. What will the future look like for Puerto Rico? We know that certain climate impacts are unavoidable at this point. What does life look like on the island by mid-century or end of the century? Well, we know that, uh, that the planet and the Caribbean region is going to continue getting hotter. The Caribbean has been under a sustained drought for a long time, which has impact and have impacts on extreme heat and health and agriculture and so on. Um, we also know that sea level rise is projected to have coastal areas chronically inundated. 
the farther out in time that goes on and we don't do something to address carbon emissions, then the worse that those impacts will become. And the longer we'll be locked in into irreversible changes because of the CO2 that's already emitted that will have a long life in the atmosphere. Are there lessons from Puerto Rico's recovery post-Maria that other communities in the United States can learn from? Definitely. I think that um, one, of, one of the biggest lessons that we can learn of the, of, of, from this experience in Puerto Rico would be that planning for the climate risks that scientists have long warned us about is instrumental. Um, that the time to start thinking about developing a resilient grid or transportation infrastructure or housing infrastructure is not right after we get hit by a monstrosity of the size of Maria. That that should have been done 20, 30, 40 years ago when scientists started predicting and, and sounding the alarm on these, on, these, um, on these issues. Great. Juan, thank you so much for talking to us today. Puerto Rico is a beautiful place. Um, any final thoughts or one, one place I should definitely go to on the island before I leave? Oh, wow. Um, you should check out El Junque National Forest. It's a rainforest with the um, most beautiful tropical canopies that you can see. It's a fantastic place. Um, you should check out the northern coastal plains that are very, very fertile plains. Um, if you drive on one of the uh, freeways towards the west, they're lovely. They're fantastic. Um, they are, the lands are made of limestone that runs off from the Cordillera Central towards the, the northern side of the island and it's a beautiful, it's a really, really beautiful site. And I think uh, having the opportunity, for me, having the opportunity of coming to Puerto Rico as a UCS scientist, it's kind of a closing circle for me because we always want to be relevant, right? And one of the concerns that many of us in the diaspora always have is that we're gonna go away from Puerto Rico and we're never gonna come back and we're never going to be able to give anything back to the island. Well, we now have that opportunity. We have a community of scientists who we don't need to, to, to convince that they need to get involved in these issues because by virtue of being scientists, by virtue of being residential community members, they have internalized that people have to band together to demand, to demand the, the changes that are going to get us on a, on a, on a resilient and, and prosperous future. And um, that's, I, I, I would encourage the people listening um, to this podcast to come and visit Puerto Rico, to have a look. You know, there's a lot of negativity in the news, which can be quite depressing. But you come down here and you see that people are resisting the idea of being locked into a non-resilient future. Juan, thank you so much. You're welcome. Okay, back to you, Colleen. And now, Shreya Dervasila on Science Rising. If you're a frequent listener, you might be thinking that I'm about to tell you about the latest, freshest, and most outrageous attack on science from our administration. But today, I want to give you a more inspiring and hopeful update. We all need a break. Earlier this year, in an effort to help organize the amazing activist energy we're feeling from scientists and science lovers, the Union of Concerned Scientists and our partners launched Science Rising a nationwide community engagement movement. Science Rising is a clearinghouse for local activities, events, and actions organized by many different groups with shared goals. One, to make sure science is front and center in the decision-making processes that affect us all. And two, 
to fight back against science being sidelined in our democracy. You don't need to be a scientist to host or attend a Science Rising event. You just have to care. And today, I'm happy to tell you that thousands of people across the country really, really care. Science Rising has logged more than 125 events with thousands of people coming together to talk about and work on issues of science and public policy. Some of the events listed on Science Rising have been a public forum featuring indigenous women climate activists, a lobby day at the Illinois State Legislature, a Wikipedia edit-a-thon hosted by 500 women scientists, and one I wish I could have attended, a Black Panther-themed science education talk for young people in Oakland, California. There have also been happy hours, information sessions, movie nights, trainings, art events and rallies, webinars and workshops, Twitter chats and town halls, and we're not slowing down. As we get closer to the midterm elections, we need as many people as possible getting engaged and encouraging their elected officials to stand up for science. Check out www.sciencerising.org to find an event near you. And if you're inspired to host your own, that's awesome! Science Rising provides support, guidance, and many resources to individuals and groups around the U.S. who want to organize events. And they'll get listed on the site if you submit them to us. Once again, that's www.sciencerising.org. Well, that's it for this episode of Got Science. Special thanks to Dr. Juan Declet Barreto. Our correspondent is Abby Figueroa. Science Rising by Shreya Dervasula. Music and editing by Brian Middleton. Research and writing by Pamela Wirth. Our executive producer is Rich Hayes, and I'm your host, Colleen MacDonald. Thanks, and see you on Twitter at GotScienceUCS. UCS.